Today's podcast is brought to you by Eggshell Light Company. For over 45 years, Eggshell Light Company has been the go-to specialty shop handling the lighting needs for all that grace the shores of beautiful Hawaii. Combining the artistic methods of the theater with the speed and efficiency of the musical touring industry, they have pioneered event lighting throughout the Hawaiian Islands. They specialize in supply of top shelf equipment and designers for broadcast concerts, corporate, and special events. From the smallest weddings to televised concerts and the largest corporate clients, they know this is your most important event. It is their goal to make sure you feel that way. Aloha from Eggshell Light Company. Welcome everyone to another episode of LD at Large podcast. My name is Chris Lose. I am the designer relations developer at Ayrton Lighting, as well as columnist for PLSN Magazine. I hope you're all enjoying listening and reading. I am in the the very high tower today of my recording studio with air quotes here. I am very excited. I didn't. This is the first time I don't have to do a Zoom call because I actually got to have a, an in person podcast today, which makes me very excited. It kind of shows that maybe some some doors are starting to crack back open and. And maybe we're all going to be able to get back to work sooner than later. I hope we're all excited for that. And hopefully we can stop relying on being locked up in a room to hide, hide away from this terrible thing that's happening these days. Put a new positive spin on it. I'm very excited. Uh, my guest today is a, a very longtime friend of mine. Uh, we have been, we've crossed paths many times in many different parts of the world. Uh, Atlanta, Las Vegas, and uh, many other parts I'm very excited today to welcome Michael Smalley. He is a creative director, lighting and video designer, and a programmer at Phantom Labs out of Las Vegas. Thank you so much for joining me today, buddy. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to... This is the, my first one in person for a while. I'm really excited about it. I've been that's doing so be many like Zoom calls. Yeah, that's got to be a different dynamic. Yeah, it's not the same. I can't sit there and like actually see the smiles and actually reach across the table. It's nice. Yeah. Yeah, and we have this beautiful view. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, fill me in on what you've been up to. I know that you are fairly new to Vegas. Has uh, has been being in Nevada been working out for you? Yeah, I love it here. I moved here just under about two years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and then immediately was out on the road for a year and a half. <laughs> so right before the pandemic, I was finishing up the Mariah residency here. And then we had one of those in november as well as part of her christmas thing so it has actually recently for the last you know now almost a year been a lot of spending time in vegas so it's been nice it's a great place i love nevada when i lived in las vegas most of my work was outside las vegas it was reassuring to know that i could always come back and there was always work to be had but it's weird if you were to move to atlanta you end up getting all the jobs in vegas and vice yeah, versa. Well, it was real interesting because I met my fiance while I was living in Atlanta, but I met him while I was out here doing the Pipple residency, you know. And then I moved out here and, you know, I didn't really do any work here up until those Mariah residencies. But honestly, living here and doing the residencies is kind of the greatest gig ever. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like once it's put together like three days a week, you roll in about midday and you work for a few hours and you get to go home. It's it's wild. I love it. For artists and technicians alike, the, the residency thing is what everybody thinks it is. It is like touring without the touring I think it's kind of the 
pinnacle. <laughs> I mean, on a comfort level, like if if you're living in, it depends on if you're living in the casinos or not. If you're living in the casinos, obviously yeah. uh, that can be a little taxing. But if you if get in one of the non-smoking properties or something like that, I mean, I, I I've always really enjoyed it, and I like getting to do the same show in the same location over and over again each week when you get in there if you want to tweak a little bit of something here and there you can um i'm always trying to make my shows better every single day maybe to a fault but um (laughs) you know there's always at least like 10 notes after every single show and just trying to tweak it every little bit and there's just more comfort level there Ronnie Beal used to make fun of me of that for doing notes on the second to last show. He's like, what are you doing? You're still making notes on the second to last show? I do notes on the last show, and then I, you know, update my spreadsheets. Yeah. Because, I mean, for these shows that I'm doing now where we're doing creative direction and show direction, it's not just the programming. There is, like, a lot of spreadsheets uh, breaking down every song into, you know... It's different components, what the lighting, video, if there's soft goods, what the staging, all that is. And, you know, a show is a living, breathing thing every night. So maybe stage managers figured out a certain way to do something else or, you know, and maybe on the last night we finally got it right. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to make sure that those notes are there. And on a residency, you're probably coming back. So I want to make sure that all of my stuff is is perfect moving forward you know, and archived in the best format. Sometimes I wonder if those last second notes, those last uh, second to last show notes are, if they're more for me or if they're more for the audience. I'd like to think that they're for me because I'm like, well, nobody's going to notice that I did this, but I'm going to know that like, man, I made it even 1% better. I think that one, the audience overall, like if you're, you know, kind of boiling it down. No, they no, they don't necessarily know, but I think that there is a big shift in intention and energy and that every little tweak, and that's the one thing I've noticed watching shows that have great creative directors and great producers behind it. Everything is so intentional. Mm-hmm. And coming up in the jam band world and then transitioning over into pop and way more structured concert things, it takes a lot of work to refine your intention. Mm-hmm. And because in the jam band thing, if you press the wrong button, it's almost part of the jazz of it. You know, do it a couple more times and then you've created something. Maybe the band feels it and they get into it. So there's more give and take. The pop shows, it needs to be precise and, you know, it's practice and discipline. And on, honestly, like, you know, having the opportunity to end gigs to work on that, but getting getting used to refining your ideas to the most perfect mm-hmm. kind of moment. And stuff. Yeah, you touched on something that's really important that I don't think a lot of people get, but the intentionality that goes in comes out. The effort that you put in comes out, even if it doesn't come out exactly the way you think it is. Just the fact that you put that effort into the show, I think the audience soaks that back up, even uh, for lack of a better term, spiritually. They, well, it's a cleaner energy, right? Yeah. It's, you know, uh, if you're just throwing a bunch of ideas out there or there's experimenting and there's so much, there's room for that in lighting. I just think when you're getting to the really high end concerts where you have an ability to really hone and clean it, the energy up and be very specific with it, that that's when it pierces the heart the most. Like mm-hmm. that's when it, because the parts of the concerts that everybody, that really gets them is when every single person in the room is unified. 
Mm-hmm. Even though they have all this other stuff going on, all of their energies hit this one single like point, you know, that is uniform across the board. And that's more difficult to do if there's distill it in the energy. You know, mm-hmm. you have to find the most perfect common truths in there I, with all the elements. And that's when everybody like, it's like a key that unlocks or something. Yeah. Um, and, you know, for me, doing the spreadsheets was something that when I switched over to pop shows, it took forever. And I guarantee you there's so much information on there that's like useless, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but I found that it's really important for me to to clarify my con- like my conscious ideas of things and get them written down as specific as possible, at least as a jumping off point and a point of conversation and analysis from the rest of the people in the creative team. Mm-hmm. You know, we have this common reference place for us to talk about it and maybe something in there changes or shifts. You know, if I get in there and I start changing the color that I'm doing with the lights, I'm, you know, that's fine, but at least beforehand we had an idea, and if wardrobe maybe needs that information, I know who to kind of go to to play off that. Mm-hmm. But because I have the intention in the beginning to really be specific about things and really chart and break it down, in the end that comes through at the final product. Because in the spreadsheet, you're not actually recording that hard value. You're recording the emotion that it's attached to that hard value. Yeah. And a lot of times I'll put like a little timer mark for a specific music accent that I want to make sure that I get or that I want to make sure that everybody knows that we're going to get. Mm-hmm. You know, if I'm not making the videos, I want to make sure that the people that are making the videos know that this is going to be a moment and let's creatively think about the best way to service that moment. Yeah, it takes a lot of time. You know, mm-hmm. you're going to spend days charting these songs out and creating the spreadsheets and labels and all this other kind of stuff. But in the end, having that document that literally everybody in the organization can use. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone from the music director to the production manager to the stage manager to every single person can utilize that spreadsheet. You know? Yeah. Uh, you're kind of a team of one in that regard. You really enjoy being... From top to bottom, uh, all around, you're a team of one. You're you do creative direction, you do lighting design, you do lighting direction, you do programming. Does uh, that does that work best? For, is that your best workflow? I think it is. Now, saying I'm a team of one, I do have two people. One, my business partner Gabe, that he and I constantly chit chat. But when yeah. it really gets down, and if I need assistance or some technical pickup on something or someone to bounce ideas about, we do that internally. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Chris Rupel, who generally comes out and assists me a little bit, but he's involved on the creative process as a springboard as well. Yeah. Um, just because I need that feedback and almost validation, <laughs> you know what I mean, while I'm doing it. But when it gets down to the brass tacks of constructing the show doing the video, doing the lighting, I definitely find that the most time efficient and the most like kind of con- you know, congealed final product is best if I do almost all of it. Okay. We've really gotten to a good workflow now where I make 2D Photoshop style renders of video content, like literally what I want the thing to look like basically, but in still frames, especially if we're doing scenic video stuff and I'll make the whole room and we show all that stuff to the client. Like it's going to look exactly like this. And then we'll go to a 3d modeler and say, make me these assets. And I just do another huge spreadsheet of every little variation I need of that asset, every little lighting, 
variation I might need, like I need it to pulse this way or I need it in these colored ways. And these clips might be two seconds long, shorter, blah, 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 but super high res. I mean, the wall over at Caesars is like like 8K, mm-hmm. you know? But they give me all these little components that I then go in in After Effects and I create the musicality. I treat it like it's a light show, you know? And I do all of that editing and, and creating the real magic of the song. And we just have internal people working for us that are generating these very specific assets. And they're all doing it kind of over alpha or on alpha, so it's transparent, so I can move these things around and compose however I need to. Right on. So you, when you're sitting and listening to the music and you're generating content, do you have the entire overall vision already in your head? Yeah. By the time I get there, I've already created a huge deck that basically lays out the entire... Because what I'm trying to do... uh, Oftentimes when I work with an artist, them and their music director have already come up with a lot of the set list, you know, and I don't, I try not to argue with that because honestly, musicians should do what musicians want to do. What I try to then do is listen to the song, see where the costume changes might be and try to build some sort of narrative. Mm -hmm. We're in this locality for act one, this locality for act two, and basically define the moments And then I go through and I make a deck of visually, this is kind of the space we're going to be in. This is the space. Um, I narrow it down. But by the time like a client like Mariah sees it, it is every single song broken down. Like we move to this space, this space, this space, then this happens and we move to another space. Yeah. And then by the time I get into actually creating the video content, I've already done all of the kind of like wrestling in my head of what this song is going to be. And I did it in a less time consuming format. I like Photoshopped it. You know, um, or After Effects Photoshop, that I use those two kind of together. Right on. Um, but yeah, I have a pretty complete vision. And then lighting-wise, I've already run the scenario of what I want to do in my head a million times. Because I'll just go out and do laps around my swimming pool, not in the water, walking around it. <laughs> <laughs> but with headphones on, listening to the same song. Okay. 20 or 30 times. Sometimes stopping it three seconds in one minute in rewinding to the beginning just to get how is this moment going to happen you know is it gonna you know these lights come to do it where do should she stand you know i'll i'll get with the choreographer and be like what do you have happening here there's also places in the spreadsheet for the choreographer to put all those notes you know um and so everybody can get into this live document thing and we can all kind of have a structured conversation about it it's your own little cranial previs suite going on out around the swimming pool huh yeah, I mean, we're talking, my fiance hates it because I'll go out there for a smoke break and put on the headphones and just, it'll be like an hour and a half. And sometimes listening to the, like, one song on yeah. repeat over and over and over again. What are you doing out there? pre vision Yeah. You know, trying to get these visions in my head, out yeah. of my head and into paper and then into a real atmosphere. Yeah. yeah. So that must be great for you because I know that much like myself... Not only are you a professional in the industry, you're also a fan. You're a music lover. You're a concert goer. Yeah, uh, on your days off, you're still goer. going to concerts. Uh, my wife time. and I are the same. <laughs> so let's kind of talk, let's get into that a little bit about what it's like to go from being a music lover and a music fan and a concert goer to next day you're on the other side of the barricade and you're like, oh crap, I have a job to do in this industry. Uh, well, it's an interesting. Transition. I don't think a lot of folks, at least, you know, for me, I was going to do theater for a long time. So it was already kind Mm -hmm. of technically minded and crew minded. But 
when I started to go see big shows and specifically going and seeing jam bands like Fish, that was when I was like, oh, well, this is kind of what I want to do. And the entry into that, that approach was always kind of like find a small band and hope they get big. Right. Right. Because that's what our idols did. Yeah. You know, like they were with a band that wasn't huge yet, didn't have an LD. And then the band took off and they, they were part of that. Yeah. The Howard Ungerliers. That's what, that's how they just did it. You you started driving a truck for a band and then they got bigger and you got bigger. Yeah. And so, um, you know, my friends and I, we, we started a kind of company where we were basically promoting shows and bringing in artists that we wanted to work for. And that we Brilliant. and that we liked, and that all of our friends liked, so we would bring them in, and then set up all the gear, and then eventually started going out on tour with these folks. And what's interesting is that our group of friends had a culture of already being into this music. We were already going to these shows of these artists, and now we were starting to work with them. And not all of our friends were, just like three or four of us, and then eventually that kind of grew. But there was always this concept of our friends being there as fans, us being there as fans, but also working and trying to figure out where professionally you draw that line. And then at some point, literally saying you have to pick your side of the barricade because once you go over to being on the crew side like you really have to shut off huge aspects of how you are as a fan or reevaluate what it is to be mm-hmm. a fan and be a respectful fan you yeah know? you can't be all a screamy teenagey girl yeah when you're when they're your boss yeah well and especially if you're in something like edm or jam or jam bands where there is obviously more substances going around there's alcohol there's all all sorts of things like that doesn't work if you're working Mm -hmm. you know um and so at some point you have to decide like do i really want to work in this industry that i'm a fan of right and that i will have much better access to the things I love and want to see and everything if I work in this industry. Because that was my thing. I was like, I just want to go and be able to see fish every single night. And if I worked for them, I could go do that. Now, that obviously didn't happen, but I found, you know, there's other artists that I'm like, cool, I'm down to see this band every night, you know? Like, I would like to work for that. And that I I still, when I go out on the road, I love doing my job. And I'm a huge, I even if I'm not a fan of the artist when I start working for them, or <laughs> like by the time we're there, I am. Yeah, know? I've uh, come across that as well. I, I know that there have been bands that I was a fan of before, but uh, there's other bands I was the opposite. I, I really didn't like that music until they were signing my paycheck. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, you're my favorite band in the world. I, I really enjoy... And I got to see it. I got to, I, when you, especially when you sit in front of house for a show, you're like, oh, all right, this is, this is all right. Maybe I wasn't judging you properly before. Well, I've always, always thought that there's a commonality between good music, regardless of genre. Exactly. You know, and I've been blessed that, I, I mean, I think for the most part, I've always worked with artists that at least have above the threshold of something that's good, even if I don't like it. Most of them have been very good music, even if it's not what I originally liked. But I find that by getting through the process of doing the lighting and designing the show that I've also broken down the music now. So likely I have an appreciation of their songwriting, maybe the lyrics. I have an appreciation of the producing of an album. You know, there's other aspects that I enjoy that I would probably like grab onto. And that comes from being a fan of music. Mm Mm-hmm. But yeah, it was it was interesting with my group of friends that we kind of had to draw a line 
you know, yeah. of those of us that were working and those of and and our friends that, you know, were there to have a good time and and you know, got it, but we couldn't just you know, you can't come backstage and hang out with us all the time no. if we're working. And, you know, it's a fine line. It's 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 really interesting. And it's interesting when you have friends come to concerts, you know. Do you find that you ever still get starstruck? Yes. Yeah. And it's unfortunate, you know, because there's definitely folks where I like, I'm just like, I love your music so much. And it has done so much for me spiritually mm-hmm. and like I connect to it so much and how how can you con- connect to me so well without knowing me <laughs> and then you feel like you know them right yeah. that's why people feel so familiar with spe- especially musicians you feel like you know them because they've tapped into a personal little doorway for you mm-hmm. you know and that that it's it's a weird human construct but yeah I mean like I still have a deep av- abiding love for fish. Like I get completely starstruck by them. Uh, I was telling you the other day, like, you know, I was backstage at one of their shows and I walked by down the hallway and the keyboard player walked by and I like diverted my eyes. <laughs> you know, I did not want to engage. I didn't want to have the veil lifted. You know, I needed, because they mean so much to me, I needed them to maintain their like godlike stature. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I find it's, it's, it's a difficult barrier to get past sometimes because especially if they're very big celebrities, you know, it's, it, it's, it's almost like cognitive dissonance. You have to like rework in your head. Like, no, 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 they're just normal people. It's not all this other stuff. You have to deconstruct what we as society have constructed up as a celebrity complex for mm-hmm. people. Yeah. You know, I, I, I often am empathetic towards my audiences when, uh, when I was with Fleetwood Mac, because Stevie and Lindsay and the whole band have been a part of these people's lives for so long. They can't even wrap their head around that they don't actually know them. Yeah. They're within, you know, 15 feet of them, but they don't actually know them. And they, they think they're like, hey, I just want to go hang out with my best friend in the whole wide world, Stevie Nicks. And like, you know nothing about their real life. She doesn't know. know you. Yeah. I mean, you, you know me. I'm a huge Fleetwood Mac fan. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, I am obsessed with Fleetwood Mac. And, you know, they've been a part of my life since I was a little kid. My, you know, my, I grew up listening to them. It was my first rock show ever was mm-hmm. Fleetwood Mac uh, when they did their reunion tour in, like, 95, 96, something like that. Um, but, yeah, you feel like these people are your best friends. And you, you And to me, I'm just like, if I could just, like hang out with them one time, <laughs> we would be best friends and that would be so cool. Mm-hmm. But then I also remember that I'm socially awkward and I would have nothing to talk to them about. <laughs> you know, and those realities creep in and that even outgoing people might, wouldn't have something to talk to the other person about, you know? And I, it was real interesting when I started working for Bass Nectar and he started to get really big because the fan base in that jam band thing, knows who the lighting designer is. Mm-hmm. Um, and you start having fans come up to you that want to be your best friend. And that, you know, I found it difficult because there's no no matter how much explaining that person does to you about how important you are to them, they will not ever be that level of important back. Mm-hmm. And it's difficult because they want to matter to you you know fans want to matter in a personal way to the artist because the artist matters to them in a super personal way but that's impossible yeah you know 
you can't, no matter how many times, you know, you tell that artist, like, you mean the world to me, that song you wrote literally saved my life. No, even if you're the most eloquent poet on planet Earth, you'll never get across what's really deeply in your heart enough for the artist to all of a sudden be like, oh my goodness, I feel all these ways towards you, stranger. (laughs) You know? And then how does the artist give back to that person? And there's only so much energy or so much attention a single human has. And Mm -hmm. artists, the, you know, the celebrities are still humans, you know, and they can't, they'll, it's, it's just such a one-sided skewed validation scenario. I feel the worst when they bring gifts and somehow they're able to get backstage and they, and they just have this pile of gifts. And I, I just could never let those people know, like those gifts are just going to get left in the dressing room because they don't have space or time for all those gifts. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's definitely a bin over at Mates or Wings or whatever it is over here with a whole bunch of stuff. I mean, they may not get thrown out. They A lot of them get saved for mm-hmm. somebody to go and filter through at some point. I get the get thing, though. You know, I get feeling that drawn because you've that artist is given to some people mm-hmm. everything. Yeah. You know, like for me, jam bands gave me a sense of belonging. They made me feel okay for the first time i was really bullied a lot in high school and never had friends and everything and i got to college started going seeing jam bands and all of a sudden i was this extroverted popular kid you know who had found my scene and found something where being nerdy about this music was actually a cool thing mm-hmm. um and that could have just been going to college you right. know and you find your crowd but to me yeah it was a strong association through music in that you know 20 plus years later I still love that same band. I get together and go see that band with the same people I've been seeing the band with for 20-something years. Yeah, there's, there's a know. lot to be said for being the soundtrack of your life. You yeah, know? absolutely. And, you, you know, you want to give back in a small way to those folks, yeah. you know. But it, it people do... I find that fans detach from reality or detach from putting their... how they are and their agency... giving a celebrity that same kind of thing like if you and every other person that feels as compelled about that artist gives them a gift they would literally have to buy mansions to store the gifts yeah you know but in a normal human if when they weren't in full like geeking out about celebrity mode would sit there and be like i can't have you know 500 tiny trinkets laying all over mm-hmm. my home. There's not enough bookshelves for that. You know what I mean? And they would be like, cool, I'm not going to do that. Right. But folks lose themselves and lose the the reality that someone lives in a house. Mm-hmm. You know, it, they're normal humans. They wake up. They, you know, it, we, we want everything to be lifestyles of the rich and famous and everything. <laughs> we might have done better as a society had that never happened. Yeah. Had lifestyles of the rich and famous and then cribs and all this concept to where we still just didn't think that, you know, mm-hmm. we didn't know how the ultra rich lived and then we didn't idolize it as much. Wow. That's, that's a whole nother uh, topic right there for oh, sure. Oh gosh, don't get me started. No. Um, <laughs> for them... That detachment is an acceptable journey for them. They can go and they can do that. And if it if it all falls apart and Stevie's like, hey, I can't hang out with you right now. You got to go. They can go home and they're like, oh, well, Stevie's, you know, she didn't want to hang out with me. But for people like you and I, if we do something wrong, I mean, that's our livelihood. If if we are in the, that setting and we say something overly awkward or 
too personal. Like somebody can go to their assistant and go like, dude, that guy makes me feel weird. He needs to go. Yeah, well, and that's, you know, that gets into some greater significances of the music business in general that um, it is very easy to say the wrong thing, be awkward in a scenario. I mean, I definitely have had those scenarios. I was working for an unnamed artist where I was told that this artist had a very difficult time staying on schedule and that they really needed someone to whip the whole process together and just keep the train moving. And they, quote unquote, needed someone that could be a little bitchy. (laughs) Right? Okay. And so I'm like, okay, cool. I can I can rise to this this challenge. And so I go in there and very quickly found that, you know, we were doing some reviews for video content. And I was like, okay, cool. Like we need to clear through these videos. I need you to like yes or no. You like this, you don't like this, blah, blah, blah. And we're like five minutes into it, and it gets derailed for an hour discussing the quality of the color pink. Okay. You know. And how it's just not blush enough or this enough or, you know, it was this whole thing about like Japanese maples or something like that. It was, but my, and my thing is, it's like, okay, cool guys. But like the reality is, it's like, we're behind schedule. We got to move forward. And I had to push it a little bit, you know, like guys, we've been talking about this for an hour. Like, let's move along, blah, blah, blah. And I got pulled aside later and was like, that can't happen. Wow. Yeah, and, like, if the artist wants to talk for five hours about the quality of Pink, we're going to sit there. And I was like, I thought you guys wanted someone to push this along. You didn't really want that at all, did you? No, you you didn't want that at all. You want somebody to blame, you know? And it's one of those things where, and this is a person that I'd had no celebrity or fan complex thing about at all. So I was able to be maybe overly real, you know? Sometimes it's possible that that bit of deference... Of being a fan or yeah. or putting them on a pedestal could help you. I just never, maybe it does. I just, in my mindset, always thought that would be counterintuitive. If we're trying to create the best art, why are we fucking playing around with pretense of your ego? Mm-hmm. Like, the best art, you're, you didn't spend your whole life learning how to be a production designer. You know, you spent your whole life making music. and you And the thing is, there's artists out there that are, multi-threats right Mm -hmm. that's not necessarily all of them and it's not the majority of them you know like some artists can only write music and not even lyrics some can only sing you know what i mean like doesn't mean they're necessarily going to be great filmmakers or they're going to be pros at after effects or know how to do vector works Mm -hmm. you know that's where these people's other training comes in so it's like why not give those people that are experts at their field all of that but i don't know maybe giving them a little bit of a pedestal and helping their ego is a smoother way of doing it. I don't know. This might get a little too real. That's a tough one because sometimes you need to know if you should just not treat them like a celebrity in any way and just go like, no, you're, that's a terrible idea. Like, you know, regardless of who you are, that the pink you chose is terrible. And I'm the guy who's brave enough or dumb enough to tell you that's a dumb ass pink. Well, I mean, you'd, You'd expect that when the relationship, if you get a few tours in or something, that you get closer to that. Obviously, it's difficult first time. And the reality is lots of artists have a different designer every tour. They kind of go through folks. So it's a lot of first times. And that can also be shell shock to the artist. Yeah. You know, if they have had a whole bunch of people never listen to them, then they come up with a fake set of rules. 
that they abide by. Like, I don't like this color spot or I don't want a backlight or something because they've had people misuse it and or miss and, and talk down to them maybe about it. I don't know. It's weird. Uh, that's actually a great topic. Do you find it better to go directly to the source, uh, the celebrity slash the client, the artist, or do you find it's better to have a filter in between? I prefer to go straight to the artist. And I've yeah. found, especially in the last year, um, the most success out of that. Okay. Um, because, and, and the fact that, you know, we lent someone at our company handle the business side of it so that I don't ever have to get mixed up in that scenario. Okay. Right. Like I'm the I'm an artist talking to an artist and we're dealing with the art stuff. Right. The other stuff is going to get dealt with outside of that. So, yeah, I mean, I found great success with that. I find also that artists will act differently if managers are on the phone. Yeah. Or if other people are in audience, if you can just get to and talk to them with just them. And that can be hard, man. These artists have crazy schedules. They also have lives on top of these crazy schedules, you know, kids, husbands, uh, wives, all these things. Like, that can be very difficult to manage for a normal person, mm-hmm. much less someone that also has to be at a recording shoot or a photo shoot or something like that. So it might be hard to get them to sit down mm-hmm. and have this conversation. So you take what you can get. But I've, um, I try to make sure that at least the artistic pitch, the creative, the big push pitch, is to the artist directly. Okay. Now, a lot of times, I've already vetted that big creative push with my production manager. Right. I've made sure it's something we can actually afford. I've made sure after I come up with the video concepts that I want to do, we price out what it would cost to make those video concepts. So we make sure that stuff. So these ideas are really pretty narrowed in and pretty vetted. The choreographer has seen them generally. The music director has generally seen them. Folks that are inside the kind of sphere of creative folks. And we've all given, I welcome feedback, mm-hmm. you know, and especially if other people have been in the the, the camp longer, okay. have more insight, you know, you do need to be careful about who brings that stuff. But when it's the final pitch, it's generally just me and the artist. Okay. I find that a lot of fake rules get generated after the artistic pitch by other people who are like, oh, well, I, I heard one time that Celebrity X doesn't like red, so mm-hmm. I'm going to make a rule for you, no red, when actually the if you actually go to the artist and say, oh, no, there was this one time that they yeah. didn't like red, and next thing you know, those fake rules and the fake laws come out, and you're like, what? That, this well, needs clarification. It, it, all, it all boils down to trust, right? Yeah. And who, who's trusted on what level and stuff. I have to say that right now I'm super blessed with my client list that in general everything defers to me if it's not directly from the artist's mouth. Um, now, you know, a lot of artists give their notes immediately after the show. They don't always give those notes directly to me because I'm not hanging out with them backstage. Right. You know, maybe it's to the music director. Maybe it's to an assistant. But those notes generally faithfully get brought across. And if I have a question, I'll ask. And generally, there's there's a good bit of kind of discourse on what those notes are. But yeah, I mean, those rules, uh, with Mariah, we weren't allowed to use hazers. There wasn't allowed to be a hazer on stage for the first two legs of a tour I did with her. And we had like a hazer out in front of house. Okay. And it had to be a radiance for whatever reason. And it was just something they had had luck with one time because she had made some statements some other time, blah, blah, blah. And, sh- and she had people, like I was saying, people who worked like either from the private show she was doing or something like that, that abuse 
the concept and they mm-hmm. aren't faithful to the trust and they, they want to fog it up so their lights look cool versus what the artist wants and everything. And there's not listening and there's not abiding, you know? I mean, with her, I even, she did a private gig and I wrote uh, a full writer, like color choice. I wasn't going to it cause it was in like France or something like that. And it was for like 10 minutes. Um, but it was like no haze, huge letters. And then underneath that, even bigger, like no haze. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, I heard back that they were fogging the whole place up beforehand, you know? So they just didn't listen. Yeah. Um, but I listened to them and I got it by and then slowly was able to interject Hayes. And we eventually were able to have an MDG one up there. Okay. And worked with it slowly, increasing it, talking to her and being honest, saying, hey, we used this very fancy hazer tonight. What was your experience? She's like, it was fine. Okay. Like, okay, cool. We pump it up a little bit more the next night. Okay, cool. That's fine. And you just get to where it is, but it's showing that you care. Right. Right. It's intention. Yeah. You know, so much in life is driven by intention. And I think we as humans are able to pick up on that, you know? That trust level takes so much time. I've, I've also had that, uh, the haze battle and it's, it's a tough it's one. It's a tough one. Uh, and my thing is, is most LDs are like, no, that's not a real issue. I was that LD for a long time. I'm like, you're just being a baby. Get up there and perform, you know, mm-hmm. you know like clap your little cymbals together, like a little show monkey or whatnot, <laughs> you know, like do your job. And that's the wrong way to look yeah. at it because the, the, the quality of the show starts on stage with the musician, whether it's a band, whether it's an artist, whether it's a ballet dancer, whether it's whatever it is, whatever the artist is that people are paying for, their comfort is the most important part, period. Mm-hmm. So lighting-wise, everything-wise, you need to make sure they're in a little tight bubble cocoon of comfort. Yep. And if that's haze that can't be around them, you know, like lights that can't be hitting them from certain directions, you figure that part out first. Yeah. Work that science out, and then you build the rest of your show around that and make that look good. But if you are trying to make your show look good at the, you know at the negative impact it has on the artist's comfort and you're constantly pushing your artist out of their vibe, you've already lost and the audience is lost and it, it, and you won't have a job that much longer, mm-hmm. you know? So I always start with exactly what the artist likes, dislikes, angles of lights they don't want to have hit them, um, colors of lights they don't want to have hit them, and you do that checklist real early on and then you build everything else out around that. Cool. It sounds like you've, uh, you've uh, honed your skills of dealing with celebrities for quite a while. How do you deal with your friends who haven't had that many years dealing with celebrities, asking for favors or wanting to come to see shows? Does that still, does that still trump you sometimes where you're like, oh, man, I don't know what to do here? Well, you know, it, it, was, it was worse. It was the worst ever right before I left Bass Nectar in 2012. Yeah, I can imagine. Bass Nectar had just gotten huge, and it was so much of an ingrained thing with our friend group. We liked the going those concerts. And the last hometown show I did with Bass Nectar, I had 75 people on the guest list. I oh did. Oh, my God. And that was in my hometown. It was literally 10 minutes from my parents' house. My mom drove a stretch limo over there, and it was like my stepdad's birthday, and the artist gave us the biggest backstage room. It was ridiculous, right? Like way too many people in there. (laughs) Um, And then fast forward um, to the next time I came through town was with Animal Collective at the Tabernacle and there was one person on the guest list. Um, And Stone Sour came through and there were 
three people on the guest list, one of which was my mom. Uh-huh. So for me, I was like, oh, shit. Like, no one's there when it's these other artists. It was about being near the celebrity that they were fans of. And I can respect that and right. understand that. But at that point, I, like, cut it all off. You're not actually here to see me at all. Yeah. But my whole thing was, is, like, I never called anybody when I did a show. I never did any, like, if I was traveling around and I want to see some friends, I'd reach out to friends. But what I did was anytime anyone ever asked me for tickets to anything ever, it was no. No. Default no. Default no. If I want someone to come to my show, I will extend the invitation. Right. And it really was a symptom of that. And I'm not angry or faulting my friends for it. Like, maybe that wasn't their thing. But whereas before, they were all flocking to it. Like, Mm -hmm you know, 70 of them. And that's not including their friends and their friends and their friends, you know, all wanting backstage passes, all wanting that. And it was great. It was a great time. I felt very rock and roll at that time in my life. Mm -hmm. But also the work wasn't, it was great work, but it wasn't like the best because I'm partying. I'm acting like my friends are acting, right? you know, which was acceptable at a certain time in rock and roll, but not if not now that we're running multi-million dollar things and it needs to be magic. And so after that, I no longer was working with artists where there was the temptation of friends and fans. Um, I, I, you know, wasn't getting hammered and everything else, you know, it, it became so much more work focused. A lot of the people who ask for tickets don't realize that you, Michael Smalley, become responsible for those people. And in that case, you had 75 people that you were directly responsible for. They had passes with my name written on them. Yeah. And that's the thing is when you get the little stickies, they have the name of the person on them who got them for you. Yeah. That, yeah, I mean, that was a big reason I cut it off. Also, I found that when, even if I was inviting people, I start having panic attacks on that day. And I feel like I have to babysit them or entertain them. Like they can't just, I have a lot of respect for the friends of mine that hook me up with tickets and then don't even see me that night. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, that's where, a thing. where it's like, it's fine. Maybe we get a drink after you do loadout or something like that, but you don't need to babysit me. But it's also because they know I'm not going to walk somewhere. Uh-huh. I'm not going to be. My partner is also trained. You know, <laughs> if you have this pass, you must be way better than even the audience members are. Right. You know, you have to be the most professional like i don't care if someone else in front of house is dancing all crazy maybe they're better friends with whomever but for you you're gonna stand there with your two feet there your arms crossed and you're gonna watch your concert (laughs) you know it's another reason that if i want to be reckless or drink a bunch or whatever or just get wild at a show i will just buy my own ticket yeah same and and i don't mind buying my own ticket i'm i like i enjoy buying my own ticket yeah so i mean almost every I, i I've gotten almost no... It's impossible to get comps for uh, residencies, generally, mm-hmm. just because they're so small of a show, so small of those deals. And so most of the shows on the strip, I've seen all of them, and I've paid for all of them. And they're pretty expensive, they're but not the thing is, is like, I love the show. I'm getting something out of it. Mm-hmm. You know, I've seen Lady Gaga's residency here like three times. And I've paid twice, and one time we just got let in through the the back door or whatnot and stood in the pit. But that show to me, I'm a fan. I'm a I'm a fan, but it's also like going to school, right? You know, I'm watching, I'm learning every time. I can dissect this little part of the show and really like get into what's happening there or what these lighting cues are about. And you know, it's 
they're done by masters. These mm-hmm. residencies are some of the best lighting and production and just the best of our business. Mm-hmm. The best of what show business has to offer is here at Vegas. And we're pretty like, spoiled that way. Oh, it's incredible. I mean, the Cirque shows, man, that was, I think, the definitive thing that really got me into wanting to do production. I, um, I saw the second Cirque U.S. tour back in like the mid-80s, I guess, mid or late 80s, the second national tour or U.S. tour that Cirque ever did, Novell Experience. Mm-hmm. And I saw it with my aunt in the tent in Atlanta, and it was psychedelic and mind-blowing and beautiful lighting and all this stuff. And from that point on, I was like, this is my thing. And every time I go to Cirque, it's like going to college. I don't mind paying that much for a ticket because I pay that much to take a college class. Mm-hmm. You know? Good analogy. It's continuing learning. You know, they should give you, honestly, the government should give you a scholarship. <laughs> you know? Like, because going to these things is continued learning. Yeah. You know? I think that's one reason I just love keeping going to concerts and why I'm still a fan is there's still so much to see and learn. I'd support socialized concert tickets, socializedconcerttickets.com. Yeah. We'll we'll work on that one. Yeah. Bernie 2024. (laughs) (laughs) So being a fan, being on one side of the barricade and then seeing the LD on the other side of the barricade, and now you are the LD on the other side of the barricade. How do you interact with guests and fans who want your attention that's really tough because for me, I want to please people, you know? And I think that goes back to what we were saying earlier is a celebrity only has so much energy. Uh-huh. Like a person that fans adulate only has so much energy they can give out and you want to make everybody happy, uh-huh. you know? And you want to give everybody time and you want them to feel important and respected and you want them to feel like you have digested how much they love you, you mm-hmm. know? And that can be very difficult. I am particularly bad at names. And I'm better now because no one at a Mariah show or a Deanne Ward show or any concert I do now ever comes up to me and tells me I do a good job. Maybe one person. But at Bass Nectar, there's like 20 and they'll wait Uh to get their chance to talk to you. So you have to like ramp yourself up for this, you know. But I could never remember people's faces or their names. Mm -hmm. So I... Started practicing literally walking up. Anytime I see anybody and they come up to me, I just act as if I've known them my whole life and act super happy. (laughs) You know, just like, hey, you know, how's it going, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, always greet that. But I do that into my normal life now, too. And I've found that it makes everybody, when they're talking to you, seem much more... Like they, they're at ease quicker. Like they've been, they're talking to an old friend. Cause I don't know if you are. Cause the problem was I go to people and look at them like, do I know this person? As this person's yelling my name, walking towards me. Cause they know my name. I don't know yeah. their name, you know? And they'd like yell from across the lobby in a hotel. Face Nectar would do these like two night, three night runs in a city and ha- they just take over every hotel around the place. So even the hotels we're staying at, it's just like every room is fans, you know? Um, and so I just act like I know all of them. But it's difficult, man. It's difficult because fans forget their own agency. Yeah. They subjugate themselves subconsciously. Maybe it's on purpose. I don't know. But they subjugate themselves to put other people on pedestals. And we don't do this just in music. We do this across the board in life. Mm-hmm. It's part of our like human condition to put people on levels. You know, maybe it's um, an aspirational, motivational technique. 
Like, I want to achieve this, you know? Maybe that's what dreams, quote-unquote, are, mm-hmm. is achieving things that other people have put on. Maybe that's why our greatest thinkers tend not to do that, really, you know? Because it seems con- counterproductive to your own enlightenment is to idolize things or places other people have already accomplished versus focusing on your own. Mm-hmm. But fans put people on pedestals and give people a voice that those people may not necessarily use well, give people influence that those people may not necessarily use well. And they very well may use it well. But the thing is, is that it's given without like a contract. You know, the fans aren't sitting there saying, hey, if I give you 10% of my soul, will you promise to be on the right side of history politically and with your relationships? Will you not, you know, do something bad? If I go and give you my unfettered love and adulation, will you uphold your end of the bargain? That's not what it is. Uh, yeah, you're right. Fans give up their agency. They subjugate themselves. They put people on a pedestal. They give their love, energy, finances, you know, uh-huh. um, and quite honestly, chunks of their soul to a person with no contract, with no commitment. It's, 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 it's what we call a, a shitty relationship, right? Yeah, like psychologists refer to this as a one-sided relationship. Yeah. Okay. So, and that's why I've always looked at this entitlement fans have where they feel like they own an artist, like right at the beginning of the pandemic, everybody expected every single DJ to be doing a live stream every week. And like, we're owed this, right? We have given you money and supported you and made you comfortable over the year. And like, no girl, it's a business exchange. Mm-hmm. You gave him money or her money, or them money, and they gave you a product, which was two hours of joy. Yep. Or the record, or the merch. Yep. Like you, that, and then the thing is, that's the only contract that exists. Yes. The fans make up this fictional bullshit cat contract that never, it's like when you send your contract, you sign it, and then they're like, oh, I'll send it back signed, and they never did, but you still show up for the gig. Yeah, that's a great analogy. You know, but that's it. Yeah. And the artist, you know, like they're not signing the contract. You're just showing up and giving them all your love and stuff, hoping that they're going to be good people. And, you know, here's the thing. They're all man children or woman children. They're all adolescents. If you were an artist, like realistically, there are probably so many other adult-ish aspects of your life that you are failing at miserably. Yeah. Me, I am a terrible adult. I can make art, you can sit me in front of my computer and I can make pretty stuff, blah, 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 but I can't balance a checkbook, I can't keep up with things, uh, I don't like doing my own laundry, <laughs> you know? yeah. like I'm, I'm, I'm to my own small degree probably manipulative, uh, self-righteous, um, super self-involved. Very self-aware. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but my thing is, is that like, why just because I'm good at making pretty things, do you all of a sudden as a fan think that you should listen to any thing I have to say about politics or about other art or um, what makes you think that because I make pretty lights that I would be good in a relationship. (laughs) Those two aren't tied together, but fans make up this contract in their head, you know? And the thing is, is that artists or fans get mad if the message the artist is preaching ends up being in contradiction to who they are as a human. I'll go ahead and let you in on the fact that most artists are writing lyrics to themselves. Yes. They're writing songs to themselves that they should listen back to and analyze their own life based off of, Mm -hmm. right? But it's not because they're hook, lying in and sinker. They're literally sending messages in a bottle to themselves and it just washes back up on their shore in a CD or every time they have to sing the song in a concert. But 
it doesn't mean they maybe did the altruistic or, you know, self-evaluative work of making change. Right. They wrote a song about it. That's their gift. Those are the most honest ones, too. Yeah. The ones where they dug deep and found something inside themselves like oh my god i have to get this out of my yeah and so you know artists who preach certain political views or certain worldviews like yes and they're using their platform for good right and that's great they're honoring that element of their contract but the what's what did the clauses did these morality clauses that companies have or football teams have or all these that if you end up being a jackass for any reason you can get fired like you don't have that with your fans no and they and the fans in their minds expect it right so i guess there is that contract because that's where we get cancel culture right yeah cancel culture is pulling the morality clause out but it's only been pulled out by you know half the folks on the board (laughs) you know because not everybody's ever on board you know? When I think of somebody not sending that contract back, I think of Michael Jackson. I love his music. Yeah. I think he is the most talented person in probably in history. Mm-hmm. Probably not the best guy to go hang out with. No, he's obviously a creeper, man. He's obviously a creeper. But I, you know, my thing though is, is like, why would we expect that he wouldn't be? Exactly. You know, like there's creepers out there. He didn't return the contract. He's yeah. under no obligation to be a, a stand-up human being to me. He's mm-hmm. uh, he's contracted to give me the what you paid top for selling it. album of all time. Yeah, you paid your 99 cents on iTunes. Michael Jackson gave you a little songy song, you know? Yeah. Like that's the thing. The contract is finished at that point, you know? Like go buy the DVD. You spend your money, you get your entertainment. You know? We need to stop... Yeah, I mean, in general, we need to stop putting people on pedestal. We have a reality yeah. television star as the president of the United States because we falsely gave moral high ground to someone because of the amount of followers that they have. Well, he has lots of ratings. He must be good at running things. Yeah, people are watching whether they like it or not and that that, you know. But the thing is, is it's a whole bunch of fans that are obviously their contract never got returned, signed <laughs> now, you know, because even the ones that voted for him for money are screwed. But I don't want to waste any time on that jackhole. Um, <laughs> sorry for my language. But I think it's interesting because, you know, as we are seeing a lot of artists um, getting outed for behavior that has been societally accepted out of rock stars and out of artists and out of celebrities for a long time, now it's not accepted or it's not accepted in certain things. It's just... I've I've found it puzzling that people necessarily thought these were good humans just because they write a good song right. or because they are good looking in a movie or they act well or they make a nice painting. So let's talk about the Dixie Chicks. It's like one day a fan absolutely loves their music. The next day they realize that they totally disagree on their choice of elected representatives. The next day they're like, well, I clearly have to burn all my CDs now. I think what you're getting across there, though, is... I don't think this is indicative of fandom, though. I think this is indicative of lower, lower level cognitive okay. reasoning. And I think that you're going to find those in places where they probably have uh, lower levels of college education. Um, I don't think that there's a whole lot of like worldly folks that were out burning Dixie Chicks albums because I think those folks were all like, hell yeah, I hate George Bush too. Mm-hmm. You know, who you found was the people who are, and, I, and I'm not trying to say, they're all like stupid ass people, but they kind of are. If you're going to willingly go and like abandon, well, yeah, I mean, it's weird because it's almost the reverse, right? They were getting punished for actually being on the right side of history. Yeah. 
you know, they were up, they signed the contract and sent it back. The audience was just unaware of the thing they bought into. Yeah. I guess. But, you know, I think that anybody that goes out and starts burning, like trailer fire, like, you know, yard sale, fucking just slash and burn it all to something that meant a great deal to them over that other thing is crazy. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, because no, I, we shouldn't go burn like Michael Jackson CDs. You can listen to them. And maybe when you listen to them, you understand the ills of his actions. And maybe that makes you think on that, you know? Yeah. And maybe you're not just thinking about a dude dancing good or whatever. I mean, when I listen to Michael Jackson, I very rarely have an image of Michael Jackson pop up in my head. Mm-hmm. I just think of music and whatever that is. Um, but, yeah, I thought it was ridiculous when the Dixie Chicks, now the Chicks, uh, got, got... Oh, they're just the Chicks now. Yeah, they've changed their name. They're just the Chicks now. Just in the past couple of weeks because they, they're intelligent, smart girls that are were on the right side of history then, okay. are on the right side of history now. Their new album or song is called Gaslighter. Okay. You know, like, they're they're smart folks and they're willing to stand up. And I was really proud of the fact that they never backed down from that. And it didn't okay. matter if they got wrongfully canceled or whatnot, they still stayed their ground. And I think that long-term-wise, they'll see more longevity because fans will respect them okay. for that. But, you know, I guess... It's, you know, a double-sided sword. Yeah. You know, and it, and that, you know. But I, I, I honestly think that it's it's weird that we think that we should be listening to these folks just because they write good songs and shit. People get upset when they go to Pink Floyd concerts because Roger Waters goes off the ham about shit. Yeah, And they're, like, surprised. And it's like, well, you don't have to listen to what he's saying about this shit. But you got the record. Mm-hmm. You know what he was saying then, and that's part of what you identified with, right? It's a little different if it's a Dixie Tricks album where they're not talking about politics at all, because at that era, they weren't, you know? And their new album, they're talking about politics, but back then, they're talking about whatever breakups or whatever the country songs were about. So when you listen to them, you weren't thinking politics. But if you listen to Pink Floyd, yeah, the message is in the music that you already liked and identified with. Now, if you are not smart enough to know that, then it gets down to the lower cognitive reasoning part. Anybody who doesn't think that musicians are voicing their politics in their music is you're missing the point. Yeah, but it's whether or not you have to listen to them. You True. know what I mean? Or agree with them or you know, and that's that's the big the big thing, isn't it? You know? God, the ones that made me laugh the hardest recently was the ones that were I think they must have been in their forties or fifties and they finally realized that Rage Against the Machine was all political. My thing is, I think that they realized it back when they were young and rebellious, you know, but as soon as it, growing up is weird. It's yeah. like, does the, I, it's different for me because we grew up in show business where you never actually have to grow up. Right. You know, so for me, I still feel a bit like a child because I don't have these kind of crazy responsibilities that tend to turn people into Republicans, I guess. <laughs> I'm not sure. You know, but there is a shift. Like, there's uh-huh. definitely a shift in people's reasoning at some point, you know? Uh, one of the best examples of that is the song Suicidal Tendencies. Uh, can't remember the name of the song. The, the one where the kid wants a Pepsi. He just mm-hmm. wants a Pepsi. I grew up in your churches. As a kid, I totally sided with the kid. He's like, man, those parents are kind of fucked up. Yeah. Now, as a parent, I'm like, oh, what a fucked up kid. He's, what a little asshole. And my that song has changed... It's through meaning. your lens, you know, uh, your, your uh, lens from my changed. lens. Yeah. 
Yeah. It used to be a song of angst and like, oh, why can't they understand me? Yeah. And now I'm like, man, they, they were probably some pretty bad parents. They really should have listened to their kid. And they, well, they you know, and there's little, like, there, it's interesting because we have to reconcile all that as humans. There's so many things that we grow up that we have to reconcile with. And I think that fans oftentimes have to reconcile with reality. The, the is, is, interesting thing is where I think where it really falls apart is fans, when you're becoming fans at 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, those, those kind of development years where you're deciding what you're going to love for the rest of your life. You know, the bands you like then, you're going to have a much harder time coming to reasoning if they're bad people. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yes. it's going to break your heart oh, that much so more. Like right now, like if all of a sudden, like I love Mumford and Sons. I love them. Whatever, whatever it is about their, their, their deal. Mm-hmm. Some folks hate them, but I love them. If I all of a sudden found out tomorrow that one of the Mumford and Sons, you know, had you know, done some insider trading and embezzled like $3 billion and, you know, left an African country starving or something like that. (laughs) I would be like, wow, that guy's an asshole. Like I might still listen to some of the songs, but my heart (laughs) wouldn't break. You know what I mean? But if, you know, if something, if like one of the members of Fish or something like that, all of a sudden, you know, had some real mess up, it would break my heart a bit. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, is that a betra- is that a betrayal or because they didn't they didn't return the contract? See, it's not a betrayal though. It's, it's not. A betray- it's a betrayal of something you've made up in your head. Yeah, which is what fandom is. You make up your friendship with these people in your head. Yeah, you. It's 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 psychosis. It in its most real form. And the thing is, is like I still suffered. I'm 39 years old, and I will listen to Ben Platt. I love Ben Platt. He was in. Uh, He's in that show, The Politician, uh-huh. um, but he's also a really amazing singer, and he was Evan Hansen and Dear Evan Hansen. He was the original guy in Book of Mormon, just like fantastic singer who's now doing all his solo stuff. I love his music. I love his live Netflix thingy. I want to be best friends with him. I'm 39 years old. <laughs> <laughs> talking about wanting to be best friends with a dude that I think he's probably 30. We don't have anything in common other than maybe we like some show tunes and I really like his music, uh-huh. you know? But it's like because of Instagram and because we can see little slices in these people's personal lives and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, we could be best friends. All I need is one time. If I can just meet him one time, all of a sudden we're going to be best friends. It's just like you're fucking delusional. I'm going to put all my f- feelings and emotions into a letter. Mm-hmm. I'm going to give it to a security guard and he's going to give it to him mm-hmm. and he's going to read it and he's going to know. And the thing is, it's like if I as 39 who's worked in the industry for 20 years <laughs> works with multi Grammy award winning platinum selling artists have this delusion about a, a, a singer that is 10 years my junior. Uh-huh. Right. And I'm delusional. I I'm not going to be best friends with anybody that's 30 years old. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know what I yeah. mean? So, I mean, maybe a couple if they're exceptional. But, yeah. you know, if I can do this, having a full grasp of what show business is and reality is and celebrity is and looking at my 3,000 followers versus his 1 million followers, uh-huh. if I can still have this cognitive dissonance and this psychosis of fandom yeah. and us being best friends, I'm sure a fan who has no grasp of the reality of the music business or of the TV business or celebrity at all and no, has never met a big celebrity, how far that psychosis yeah. can go. It's almost like you have to, you have, it sucks because you don't have to, but responsible 
receiver of the fandom. Yeah. Or, you know, a celebrity or even in our cases, you know, when fans come up and talk to us as the recipients of adulation or, you know, some sort of correspondence to the adulation. We almost have to be sympathetic to the trauma of this person's psychosis, you know, like we have to cater our response because if we're rude to that person and it crushes their whole dome of fantasy, (laughs) you know, it's genuinely devastating for that person and that's Uh, what happens when we find out that you know this artist we love is a sexual predator or this artist we love you know is racist mm -hmm. or something like that is it pops the bubble and our whole constructed psychosis world that's a coping mechanism for every other stress we have in our lives yeah Right? Because when we're feeling terrible about everything, we go and hop in our little bubble. I have my Bose Quiet Comfort 35s. Like, I live in those things. Uh-huh. It's my world. If I like any emotion, any kind of thing that's going on, I put those things on and I just, it's all okay. And we, we work in this. So our bubble is, all, is it's, it's, it's not like a bubble. It's like in Wakanda when the shields come down, just like a little bit. You know what I mean? It's like a shattered glass dome. You know, there's still some walls up. There's still a little bit of fantasy, but we can see out. Yeah. But fans don't have that. No. You know, they firmly picked their side of the barricade, you know, and they don't have any clue what happens on the other side, you know? Um, so it shatters. It pops that bubble, and it crushes their coping mechanism. You know, and that that actually is a betrayal. Not that it's a betrayal because the artist is responsible to care. But as a social construct, you know what I mean? It's a betrayal. It's not it's not right. You have totally renewed my empathy and sympathy. and I'm going to hand out more set list than ever before. I'm going to have like a stack I hand of out set a lot. lists. I love, I love handing out set lists. I will, I, you've renewed my empathy. I, I started going, as we get more and more digital, I've stopped doing it. I used to enjoy oh, doing no, it. I go up to the stage at the end of the show, even though I have no reason to be on stage, and I like going and getting the set list and handing them to all the kids in the front. Good for you. Like, I, because it, I have a lot of set lists at home. Yeah. I have fit like not a fish set list, but uh like a solo project from fish set list. Yeah. I have like Grateful Dead one. I have a, a, bu- a bunch of super cool set lists that mean a lot to me because growing up in the fish community, you wrote down the set list as you went. You know, yeah. so I have books of set lists I've written and everything. So it's kind of, you know, it's a thing. I love it. Listening to you for the past hour, that is I think it's the least we can do to thank the fans. Like you're never going to get that contract least. back, but here's yeah. a set list. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely the very least. For me, I've always held, and it, it changed a lot when we got into pop concerts, specifically working for Pitbull, because when I was working with Bass Nectar, it's, some people obviously have to work pretty hard to get that money, but a lot of them have parents that are funding it. A lot of them have pretty easy life. You know, it's, uh-huh. it's, it's not a financially strapped scenario, and tickets are a lot cheaper. Go over to Pitbull. It's a Latin market mostly. Tickets are twice as expensive, and families are saving. Oftentimes, you know, they're already in hardships, and they're saving six months to be able to bring the whole family out to this concert, to be able to have an hour and a half of release in, their, in their very intense life, you know? And it's even more when you're traveling abroad, you know? Like yeah. when we're going in Central and South America, these people are working almost a year sometimes maybe to make enough money to do that, right? And so I was like, who am I who makes good money? who's literally been sitting on his ass all day just getting high, you know, who am I to phone it in and not, boom, do my utmost 
possible to honor that because it is at that point a contract. Like I should be giving them 120, 130% of myself because they've made every sacrifice to have that moment. And that for me, those moments of joy and perfection at concerts lifted my soul Helped me out of dark places. It was a big deal for me. Yeah. You know, it saved my life in many respects. And so it can do that for all these other people. And I think it's it's a big part of our responsibility as being part of those concerts to do our utmost. There's no night where you can just do kinda. And I don't care if you're not feeling it. You don't get that luxury. Like you have such a blessed life. If you're the LD on a major concert tour, your life is cake. You're doing pretty good. Yeah, you know, and it's like, just go in there and just do the absolute best at button pushing and be 100% devoted and don't get distracted and, you know. And honestly, a set list costs us negative, it's it's not even a thing. Yeah, well, they're going to end up in a trash can, right? Yeah, it's actually wasteful for us to not give them to somebody who wants them. Yeah, picks too, all of it. Yeah? Yeah. Just, you know, just take... Five seconds. I love fans. It's just, it can, you know, I wish fans had a little bit more respect for themselves and didn't give up so much of themselves to an artist. But maybe, maybe they don't get the same kind of feeling if, if they're not completely in it. I won't give a set list to somebody who demands one. But if anybody even, if it's a request, and especially yeah. if they say a please, you're, yeah. you're going right to the front of the line. You're getting a set list. Yeah. I like the folks that come up, like, either right before the show yeah. and are real nice. But like, hey, I'm done with this. is my name. Like, yeah. Hello. My name's Robin. I would love to have a set list. Yeah. Can I come to you first right after the show? Like, yes, Robin. I, yeah. I'm, take a snapshot of your face. Yeah. You, you got it, Robin. Yeah. I like giving out set lists for sure. I like giving out DM word set lists because... It's almost like um, a really vulgar haiku when you read, (laughs) (laughs) you know, like when fatty boom, boom, um, you know, (laughs) things like that. It's funny. Uh, (laughs) I just thought of that. That's an original joke right here. (laughs) Nice. Michael Smalley, thank you so much for sitting and chatting with me for an hour. We we ripped through that one. I don't think that we had a single silent pause, awkward moment. I... Totally appreciate you uh, (laughs) chatting with me. You're very well spoken. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks for having me.